Once again, we're absolutely delighted to, to invite you to, to welcome you to a talk run by the Society for Algerian Studies. And um, on this occasion, um, after a long delay for complicated reasons which we will not go into, we've at last succeeded in the, having the pleasure of having Natalia Vince talk to us because we've been planning this for about a year and a half. Um, um, she is here. Um, she's senior lecturer in French and North African Studies at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, and she has a book coming out with Manchester University Press entitled Our Fighting Sisters, Nation, Memory and Gender in Algeria. 1954 to 2012 and um, I've just been saying to Natalia that we, we tend not to ask people to come and speak to the society twice in too short a time but I think I might foresee that we could possibly think of having some sort of book launch when, 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 your, when your book actually comes out. So Natalia on the title on the subject of 1960s Algeria and women public space and moral panic, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you very much, John, and thank you very much for the invitation to come speak um, at Slice about your studies, and thank you all of you um, for being here tonight. Between 1954 and 1962, Algerian women played a major role in the struggle to end French rule in one of the 20th century's most violent wars of decolonisation. In villages and mountains, women provided logistical support for rural guerrillas in the Army of the National Liberation Front, or the FLM. They cooked for them, they washed their clothes, they gathered medicinal plants, and they informed them of the movements of the French Army. In the towns and cities of Algeria, women were part of the FLM's urban guerrilla networks, in some cases planting bombs, as well as participating in liaison activities and transporting weapons. Some women, often those with medical training, also joined rural guerrilla units. The very presence of women in the anti-colonial combat was a key part of the FLN's political campaign to win over international public opinion and to help combat the French government's depiction of the nationalist struggle as a minority movement led by religious fanatics backed by Egypt's government Nasser. By all accounts, Algerian women's participation in the anti-colonial struggle from the late 1950s onwards brought about their mass entry into the public sphere. But I'm not going to talk about that this evening. What I'm going to talk about this evening is what happened next. And I'd like to begin with the accounts of two women who participated in the anti-colonial conflict describing the first few weeks of independence in July 1962. And here are a few images um, of sort of the days and indeed weeks following um, independence in 1962. So the first account that I'm going to begin with is that of a woman called Sharifa Akash. Um, she was from a village in, in the region of Kabylia, Kabili. Uh, During the war, she provided logistical support for rural guerrillas in the National Liberation Front. And this is how she described independence. She said, we paraded, we climbed up onto lorries, we said, long live Algeria, there were lots of drums, we danced the nights and nights, we spent the night outside, the Mujidin, by which she means the soldiers in the National Liberation Army, they called us our mothers, our sisters, they said to us, nothing will happen to you, you're safe. 
This count in many ways consolidates some of the most familiar images of Algerian independence in 1962. And as I've said, these are a few examples. Um, so we see men and women climbing onto cars and lorries, hanging out of lorries. Very powerful image on the right there of people um, climbing onto sort of monuments that have been constructed sort of by the French state to sort of glorify colonialism. That particular monument there glorifies the centenary of the French colonisation of Algeria. And we see people sort of climbing onto that statue and putting the Algerian flag onto that statue. Um, and these images sort of capture not only sort of enthusiasm and the delight of sort of the days and the weeks that followed independence, but they also depict, I think, a revolutionary moment. And this revolutionary moment is encapsulated by the disintegration of boundaries separating male space from female space, from European districts, from Muslim districts. So what happens upon independence is the Algerian inhabitants of towns that have significant European populations they both literally and symbolically appropriate the urban geography. Yeah? So they march into the areas, um, the European quarters of the cities in which they live. They put flags on sort of French monuments, um, and at the same time as sort of the Muslims of Algeria appropriating sort of the European space of Algeria, women are occupying public space in ways that would, would have been fairly sort of unthinkable before they're sort of dancing alongside men and staying out all night. So that is one image of independence. And I'd like to contrast that with the account of another woman. Her name is Zor Zerari. Zor Zerari has been a high school student in Algiers when the War of Independence broke out. She joined the Algiers Bomb Network, and as a result of that, she was arrested and imprisoned. After independence, she was released from prison and she became one of the first female journalists in independence Algeria. One of her first assignments as a journalist was to report on a meeting held in Algiers in summer 1962 to discuss cleaning graffiti off the walls of the capital city. Now you might wonder why cleaning the graffiti has such importance in Algeria in summer 1962. You might think they've got much greater problems um, to deal with after seven and a half years of war and basically the collapse of the infrastructure of the country. Um, but it's actually a very political issue because of what some of that graffiti said. So while some of the graffiti um, is basically nationalist slogans, um, so you can see some there, one one so hero the people, which is sort of the slogan of the FLN. Um, Long live the motherland. You know, it might not look very nice, but actually it's pretty politically correct. What the politicians in Algiers in summer 62 are particularly worried about is graffiti, which is critiquing the faction of the FLN, which sees power in the summer 1962. Because what happens to, to the, to the sort of nationalist movement in 1962 is it implodes and uh, one faction of the FLN, led by Bimbello, who would later become president, and sort of army generals, um, they took power um, to the detriment to sort of a, a number of other sort of factions within um, the nationalist movement. And so you can see, for example, um, this image here on sort of the bottom left. That one is actually warning against building a personality cult around Bimbello, and that's why they want to get rid of this graffiti. So, Zora Zarari, she attends this meeting as a journalist, she's got her notebook, um, and she's basically the only woman in the room. This is, this is a very big meeting with delegates from sort of across the capital city. 
By attending in sort of the gender-neutral capacity of journalists, by blending into a sphere dominated by men, she is embodying one of the claims made in the FLN's June 1962 Tripoli programme, which was supposed to be the blueprint for independent Algeria. Now, this document was very hastily put together. It's put together in the middle of an internal power struggle, but nevertheless, the Tripoli programme declares that, and I quote, the participation of women in the fight for liberation has created favourable conditions to break the centuries-old yoke which weighs upon her in order to associate her fully and totally in the running of public affairs and the development of the country. The meeting took a very unexpected turn, however, when one male delegate, who probably thought that he was being very funny, dropped into the debate the expression Lamra Hashek. Um, and in dialectical Arabic, Lumra means the woman, and Hashak is actually very difficult to translate. It's a colloquial expression, and what it basically means, you're laughing, aren't you? Because <laughs> um, it is difficult to translate. Um, what it basically means, it's, it's an apology for mentioning something that is considered not polite to talk about in public. So if you talk about your shoes, someone passes your, you know, if you ask someone to pass you your shoes, you might say, pass my shoes, hashek. If you talk about going to the toilet, you might use hashek, and so on and so forth. The mrah hashek is also sometimes used when men talk to other men about the women in their family, supposedly as a mark of respect for the private sphere, in the sense, my wife, although I shouldn't speak her name publicly, but actually, in the context in which he was using that expression in this meeting, there wasn't very much doubt about what he meant. At best, he sort of verbally denied that women have their place in the public sphere. And at worst, and much more likely, given they're talking about cleaning walls, um, he's suggesting that the post-war women of Algiers also needed cleaning up. Now, Zorzarari, the journalist in this meeting, she is outraged. And when she tells this story, she says that she was physically held back from actually attacking the man. Um, early the next morning, nevertheless, she was still angry. And she tracked him down to his workplace, and she demanded to know whether his view of women extended to thinking that his wife, his daughter, and his mother were also dirty and required moral cleansing. So both of these stories, so both Sharifa Cash's story of sort of this revolutionary joy and the breaking down of boundaries, and Zorzarari's account of hostility to women in the public sphere and the idea that they needed cleaning up, these are stories about what happens in the aftermath of revolutions. And they may well seem familiar uh, to women in Tunisia, in Libya, and in Egypt since 2011, where the joy of overthrowing oppressive authoritarian regimes and reappropriating public space uh, has often rapidly been followed by sometimes violent attempts to exclude women from that very same space and deny them an active role in the post-revolution project. In Algeria, it's commonly stated that after independence in 1962, women, including women who fought in the War of Independence, were, and I quote, sent back into the kitchen. Yet, as Leela Abu-Lugud argues in her volume on Egypt and Iran, post-colonial or indeed post-revolutionary projects with women as their object should not be seen as part of a trajectory moved from patriarchy to liberation or indeed vice versa, but instead placed, and I quote, squarely within the messy situations of state building, anti-colonial nationalism, changing social orders and the emergence of new classes. So that is to say we need to study not only what happens to women, or more precisely what happens to different groups of women, as they're clearly not a homogenous category, but also how these women's experiences are part of a wider sort of 
processes of sort of social, economic, political and cultural change. And by the same token, by exploring how post-colonial states sought to reimagine the nation through redefining women's rights, roles and physical appearance, we can gain key insights into the broader debates about post-colonial, post-revolutionary projects. So what I'm going to be talking about in this paper is the debate surrounding women's more permanent as opposed to wartime entry into public space after independence. So I'm going to be examining how women's presence in the workplace, in politics and in the street was discussed in the first years of post-independence Algeria. That is to say how it's presented in official discourse and state-owned media as necessary or unnecessary or desirable or undesirable. And what attempts were made to manage this entry into the public sphere and public space. So what I'm going to be arguing is that exploring how the state sought to make safe or pacify public space to make possible or socially acceptable women's entry in it This allows us to bring some nuance to the way in which Algerian cultural politics in the 1960s and 70s have often been characterised as dominated by a confrontation between, on the one hand, sort of traditionalists and religious conservatives, demanding that women be the guardians of an Arabo-Islamic collective identity, and, on the other hand, modernists, those with Marxist tendencies, demanding that women become workers contributing to socialist construction. And this is a common in which sort of 1960s Algerian politics has talked about, talked about, and, and even talked about, um, but it's a confrontation uh, between, on the one hand, religious conservatives, and on the other hand, sort of socialists. In order to question this dichotomy, um, the idea that I want to develop here is what I term revolutionary seriousness. And I had initially thought of the term revolutionary morality, and then I googled it and I discovered that Trotsky had already come up with that and was such a change it. Um, but this is the idea that a single-minded commitment to post-independence national construction, or what was sometimes termed the objectives of the revolution, meant that a separation of the sexes, or separation outside of the family sphere, no longer needed to be maintained. So revolutionary seriousness expresses the idea that men and women could occupy the same spaces united in the tasks of national construction as asexual citizens in much the same way as during the war new forms of social mixing between men and women in the FLN were rendered familiar and socially acceptable by using a language of sort of brothers and sisters. And of course that terminology also has religious connotations. Now, as you can perhaps imagine, this sort of idea, this language of revolutionary series didn't necessarily convince Algerian society at the time. Um, They weren't won over by this idea. Um, But in the second half of the paper, what I'm going to be doing is using all history interviews to focus on how some women negotiated their presence in the public sphere and strategically used this language of revolutionary series seriousness, and think about the impact that this had on the value that they attached in the 1960s to what was termed the woman question, women's issues. So, in order to understand this desire to sort of make safe or pacify the public sphere, we need to put ourselves in the context of 1962. This is a year zero in which everything seemed possible. For Fadila Marabat, a feminist writer and until her exile from Algeria in 1971, a presenter on national radio, Algeria was going to be the model for the world. 
at the radio there was a revolutionary spirit. Algeria had been devastated by seven and a half years of war. The economy had ground to a halt. The countryside had been bombarded, including with napalm. The vast majority of Algeria's significant settler population, which had dominated public administration, institutions, and the majority of private enterprise, had fled Algeria, meaning that state employees, so civil servants, the judiciary, the police, and teachers disappeared overnight. But as these settlers were leaving, lots of people were also arriving. So nationalist leaders and refugees had been exiled in Europe, Tunisia, and Morocco. Algerian emigrant workers from France, hoping to rebuild their life back in the newly independent state, as well as tens of thousands of European and especially French technical advisors and international revolutionaries seeking to create in Algeria a third worldist utopia, which would avoid both capitalist exploitation and the more repressive aspects of communist regimes. But in addition to, and perhaps more important than the many, many official speeches about the fact that supposedly women's contributions to the War of Independence heralded a new era for women's rights and roles, the simple fact of desperately needing men and women who could read and write, and these were a very small minority of people um, in 1962, um, the statistics from 1964, so the start of the war, were that 13% of men were literate and 5% of women, so the vast majority of the population is illiterate. And that actually means that independence potentially provides a wealth of professional opportunities for the tiny minority of women who possess such skills. And this particularly meant young women without family responsibilities who in the final years of colonial rule had benefited from sort of a limited increase in educational provision. So one uh, contemporary left-wing politician, Louisa Hanun, um, she talks about her childhood memories from summer 1962, and she says, I still remember the men from the prefecture who took to the streets to ask all the families where there were girls who knew how to read and write or type to free them up to come and work. So officials are basically going to people's houses, knocking on the door, saying, have you got anyone in your family who can read and write? We need them. The war had also led to tens, indeed perhaps hundreds of thousands, of widows. And whilst the state set up a not always easy access pension scheme for these widows and their children, it also sought to enable some of them to take on the role of family breadwinner through providing them with employment, for example, in sewing workshops or in light manufacturing. This is a picture of one such workshop that was specifically set up for the widows of the war dead. Um, so they could make a living. That said, the number of women working outside the home in the 1960s shouldn't be understated. Official statistics from 1966 state that only 1.82% of women in Algeria um, recorded as being in paid employment, which is obviously very small. However, it undoubtedly underestimates you know, rural women working in family farms, urban women working on home cottage industries, and actually widespread undeclared employment. Um, but at the same time, that is still a pretty small percentage of women in the workplace. Nevertheless, the revolution, or at least or at the very least, state construction, was potentially in danger if women did not enter into the public sphere. In official speeches, women of all educational and social backgrounds were called upon to participate in relaunching the Algerian economy. So speaking to trainee typists in March 1963, the first president of Algeria, Ahmed Benbella, declared, and I quote, the march towards socialism cannot take place without the Algerian 
Nigerian woman. Out of 12 million Nigerians, 7 million and maybe more are women. But a revolutionary situation is also a situation which risks falling into chaos. In the first years of independence, this fear of chaos expressed itself through moral panic. Deputies in the Algerian National Assembly, as well as journalists writing in the state-controlled press, regularly complained about moral decline, which they saw as manifesting itself through indecent dance crazes, miniskirts, and there's lots of pictures like that in the Algerian press in the 60s, hysterical music, by which I think they mean pop music, um, unmarried couples frequenting each other in public, slot machines, and men harassing women in the street. In 1963, the newspaper Mujahid interviewed a young male veteran of the War of Independence who expressed his despair at post-war male teenagers. He described them as mummy boys contaminated by dancing the twist. They complained about everything he said, but neither fought in the war nor worked to rebuild Algeria, and moreover, he added, they don't respect our sisters. Another newspaper, Révolution Africaine, expressed the fear that whilst French colonialism had been kicked out, cultural neo-colonialism may have found its way in through these new pionniers, these new settlers, i.e. they're talking about carefree young men with flashy cars and some girls who wore too little and came home too late. The model Revolution African, which was a left-wing newspaper dedicated to international revolution, the model it declared should be Cuba, where, and I quote, singing together, girls and boys construct their future. This reference to Cuba highlights that this sort of sense of moral panic is not just confined to conservative tendencies. On the contrary, comments by Marxist sympathisers and sort of uh, Muslim religious thinkers in the immediate post-independence years was a very deep anxiety that the revolution was in danger. Where they diverge is in defining what is counter-revolutionary. Is it sex, alcohol, short skirts, partying and pop music? Or is it disrespectful women, failure to let them take their place in society and consumerism? And when we look at these debates on closer examination, we can see that sort of the Puritan desire to curtail sort of debauched in inverted commas, cultural practices, and a revolutionary zeal to construct a new state and society were actually not so diametrically opposed. The yearning for order was not just a conservative reflex. There was a general agreement in the 60s that a state needs to be created and boundaries put in place in society to avoid chaos. So social change is not necessarily seen as the enemy of morality, but it has to be carefully controlled. So how then could change be managed? How can order be ensured? And who is responsible for maintaining moral order? I'm just going to quite briefly quote some of the public pronouncements um, made by Algeria's first two presidents, we've got Bembella at the top, Bembella at the bottom, um, on this question. They did talk quite a lot about what was termed the woman question. So, for Bembella and Boumedien, this is their image of what Algeria should look like and place of Algerian women in it. It is very, very ordered and neat. You know, women are part of national construction. So speaking in 1963, at the first May Day demonstration since independence, uh, Algeria's first president, Bella, declared, and I quote, 
Let the woman problem be posed once and for all. Liberate your women so they can take up their responsibilities. By leaving women prisoners, it's half our people, half of our country, which is paralysed. Don't think that the veil will protect them. The revolution will protect them. So this speech, which is very obviously aimed at men um, to allow female family members to come out to work, insisted that there was no longer the need to hide women from the colonial gaze, but it equally um, sought to reassure men that sort of the moral purity of their women was safe in the hands of revolutionary state and society. Two weeks later, speaking in the city of Oran, Ben Bella insisted that, and I quote, it is not the wearing of the veil which makes us respect women, but the pure sentiments which we have in our hearts. The president implied that the proclaimed socialist society would simultaneously defend women from losing their collective identity, or their Arabo-Islamic personality, use the vocabulary of the time, so they wouldn't lose that identity through sort of neo-colonial mimicry, and at the same time they would be protected for any undesirable intentions on the part of their male co-workers, because both women and men would be too busy devoting themselves to the nobler task of national construction. In both of those speeches, uh, the better refers to the veil. He wasn't particularly interested in the veil at all. Um, um, we need to be clear what he's talking about when he talks about the veil. He's actually talking about the hake, which is um, sort of a white cloth that you have to hold around you. Um, so for him, the problem of the hake and the workplace was that you couldn't work when you're holding it. So obviously if you wear hijab, it, it doesn't pose the same kind of problems. So in Algeria, there isn't a debate about the veil in the same way as there is in the late 1950s in Tunisia. Uh, for Babella, it's simply a symbol of the fact that women are going out to work. Um, it's not really the veil. Algeria's second president, Boumediene, who overthrew Bembele in a bloodless coup on the 19th of June 1965, is commonly depicted as more socially conservative than Bembele, seeking to pair the development of a modern, industrialised nation with a greater commitment to rediscovering Algeria's Arab-Islamic roots. Speaking at the conference of the National Union of Algerian Women, which was the mass organisation of the single-party state which was meant to regroup Algerian women, uh, in 1966, Boumedien stated that, and I quote, The Algerian woman has, in effect, imposed herself in our society thanks to her efficient action, her sacrifices, and the many martyrs which she has given to the cause of a free, modern, and socialist Algeria. All the same, it is absolutely necessary that this evolution takes place in a natural way and within the framework of the Muslim religion, since our society is at the same time Arab, Muslim, and socialist, and has foundations and traditions which we must respect. Nevertheless, the kinds of arguments used by Boumediene to state his position on the woman question are broadly similar to those of Ben Bella. Um, Boumediene argued in a speech in 1972, it's time for the Algerian woman to seriously and actively take up her positive role in the construction of our country. She, only yesterday she was exposed to multiple infernal attempts seeking her defamation, her alienation and her loss of collective identity. Basically what both presidents are arguing is that whilst in the colonial period it was considered necessary for nationalists to imagine women as sort of the repositories of an unchanging culture impervious 
and especially hidden from colonial attempts to subvert their identity, the very fact of independence implied that this was no longer necessary. So neither president seeks to question the ways in which some of the causes of women's exclusion from the public sphere might result from practices and beliefs from within Algeria society, rather than sort of simply being conditioned by external factors. Both of them present the end of colonial rule in a very sort of uncomplicated way. It's the beginning of a new era, and single-minded commitment to national construction would ensure that the moral order was maintained. Now, it's not going to come as a surprise to you that much of Algerian society was not convinced by this argument that everything would be okay because of the pure sentiments in our hearts. Um, so whilst sort of universal free education for girls and boys was one of the success stories of the 60s and 70s in Nigeria, the place of women in public space and world of work was sort of much more difficult um, to establish. Um, and women walking in the street in the 60s, and this was quite a social problem, were reminded on a daily basis that men thought that the street belonged to them. Um, so there is basically significant sort of social resistance to the idea that, that women are going to enter into the world of work, that women have, you know, women have a place in public space in the, in the same way that, that men do. So in an interview in 1978, Fadila Shentouf, who was the founder of the textile cooperative in Algiers in 1970, described the difficulty she had in getting young women, young women to come and work in the cooperative, faced with the opposition of other family members who would come and collect the side of work and then take it home for the young women to do there. Interviewed in 1968, um, the journalist Zora Selami, who, funnily enough, you can see her there, she later became Dembele's wife, um, she declared that independence had changed nothing for Algerian women. She said, it's very simple and it's to be expected because social structures cannot be changed in one year or five years or ten years unless there is a real revolution. In this context, the second option presented itself. Public space would be made safe for women using much more coercive methods. So when Fadila Shentouf refused to give the young women's certain work to other family members, no one came to her textile cooperative for three days. Then, she said, the female workers put their foot down and they came along themselves in person. They came out on top of the standoff and so did we. Other um, schemes were also rolled out to try and make public space safe for women. In order to deter men from participating in the sort of the daily stream of vulgar comments directed at women walking in the streets, anti-womanizer operations, they're called Operation Anti-Dragueur, were held. One operation in Algiers in December 1967 ended with 13 young men being arrested for harassing women in the street. Uh, looking to maximise the, uh, the sort of the effect of discouraging them and other men from doing that, their photographs were printed on the front page of the main national newspaper in Algeria, alongside their names, ages and occupations. Um, they might well have considered themselves lucky to have only escaped with public humiliation. In um, book, two books published in 1965 and 1967, entitled La Femme Algérienne, Algérienne Woman and Les Algériennes, Algerian Women, the feminist activist Fadila Marabat suggested that forced labour would be an appropriate punishment for men harassing women in the streets. Now, there are 
kind of very obvious limitations to this sort of punitive approach and quite frankly the political will of either the Bel or Boumedien or the political systems that they are part of to push through in a systematic way women's entry into the world of work is highly questionable. Yet the language of revolutionary series is important, and it is important because it is a language and frame of reference used by the tiny minority of women who did enter into politics or professional jobs in the 1960s. Now, these are women who were educated in the late colonial period, who had a social and educational capital that they could draw upon after independence. They're often war veterans. Um, For example, the first... There were 10 women in the first um, German National Assembly, all of them were war veterans. Um, When these women went into the public sphere, um, they often went into places that were dominated by men um, because they would go into government administration or the political system or journalism. So this very tiny minority of educated women, their profile is very different to that of the majority of women who are working who are in unskilled work and in very feminised employment where there aren't actually that many men at all working there apart from maybe a supervisor. So I do stress that this is a very small minority of women. Um, But what's very interesting about these women is that they are often very, very resistant to both the idea that they represent sort of the new Algerian woman or indeed that they have any um, responsibility or that it would be a good idea for them to have sort of a collective female voice. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Basically, they want to be seen as citizens and not women. So from the outset, this contributes to this tiny minority of educated women in the world of work being very suspicious of the mass organisation which is created by the state for Algerian women, which is the National Union of Algerian Women, the UNFR. Um, and very few of war veterans who had significant political capital, who were very educated, very few of them actually join it, and they primarily don't join it because it's a single-sex organisation. So for these women who fought in the war, who fought alongside men, creating a women's organisation is not seen as sort of a positive step towards gender equality. They see it as sort of a regression in sort of promoting the idea of female difference and by inference, inferiority. And it's quite interesting in this image, this is a picture of International Women's Day meeting organised by the uh, Union for Algerian Women um, in the late 1960s. You'll see in the banners um, up on the top um, that they are slogans that are about the international context, you know, down with American American imperialism, get out of Vietnam, um, glory to the, the martyrs of socialism. Um, they're nothing to do with women. If you are wondering who the martyrs of socialism are, this is a very interesting translation issue. Um, the martyrs refer to the war dead. Um, so socialism isn't actually, you know, they're not talking about people that accidentally got killed by a tractor on a, on a um, collectivised farm or anything. What they're actually talking about um, is this is glory to the, the people who died in the war of national liberation, which has kind of got translated as glory to the martyrs of socialism. Um, but that image in itself is very interesting about how 
different languages, language of socialism, language of the war, they'd um, kind of get meshed together. But you will notice that, that none, neither of those say anything about women. Um, also, there are very few attempts um, beyond the, the very limited scope of the, the UNFR to organise as women. So the UNFR is a very small, not very successful organisation. It doesn't really do much. It does a few foreign delegations. Um, they do sort of a few official ceremonies sort of on International Women's Day every year. There is one exception in the 1960s where women in Algiers meant to be organised as women. They have this very big um, International Women's Day uh, demonstration that by all accounts appears to get slightly out of hand and ends with women blocking the traffic in the streets and terrified men sort of running out of their cars. Um, but that, that in itself is a very interesting event, it's sort of the exception rather than the rule. There is a general resistance uh, amongst educated with political capital to organise as women and they refuse to be the spokespeople for sort of the woman question or women's issues. So if we go back to the journalist that I was talking about um, at the start, Zorzi Hari, she is asked to write about women's issues by her newspaper and she refuses to do so. And instead she specialises in investigative journalism on industrial and agricultural issues um, and notably assessing the impact of Algeria's socialist path on these sectors. And she's often very critical of their um, lack of achievement. Um, so Fadil al-Marabat, who, who does campaign um, by the mid-1960s on women's issues, is, is very much a lone voice. Um, and she says that at the start she didn't believe that it was useful to campaign as women and when she does start to believe that it's useful to campaign as women no one really supports her and what she says is my generation felt humiliated when I said that we were oppressed so there is a, a definite resistance to sort of organising as women or, or using sort of the woman question um, as a means for political action. And we can see that in a number of examples, and I'll just give you two here. So in August 1963, the newspaper Le Peuple ran a series of articles interviewing two women um, who were in the Algerian National Assembly, Zora Trif and Miriam Belmihoub. Um, and both of those women are actually very famous in Algeria. The first one was Zora Trif. Um, she was in the Algiers Bomb Network. Miriam Belmihoub was one of the first three women to join the rural guerrilla. Um, and they're two of the ten female deputies in the Algerian National Assembly in 1962. Um, that's 10 out of 196, it's only 5%. Uh, but it's interesting to note that prior to 1987, women had never made up more than 5% of MPs in the British House of Commons, so it's certainly not a low percentage um, for the time. So Zora Cliff and Miriam Ben-Mihub were asked to respond to the question, is there an Algerian woman problem? And neither woman thought that there was. Instead, they both insisted that the condition of women needed to be placed within the wider context of economic development and education. So they kind of reinforce, if you like, this dominant discourse which subsumes gender issues to the wider political and economic project. So Ben Mahoub underlines you must not talk about the emancipation of women in terms of the veiling traditions, but by giving women employment. Drift insists the liberation of men and women comes down to the question of education. Um, 
they do make a few criticisms. They make a few criticisms of, for example, marriage law, um, but they really insist on the importance of addressing sort of broader socio-economic issues. Yeah, the equality of rights and duties, equal pay, and socialism. Uh, they both insist on socialism. Um, so our cliff sort of recognises that some sort of former brothers in arms actually do have quite reactionary attitudes, but she said this isn't women's problem to deal with. She said this is men's problem. Um, she said some of our brothers, not all of them, we need to be nuanced, used women in an instrumental way during the war. This is why after liberation we can see them backwards on their part. But, as I said, she thinks it's for men to deal with. Drift called the woman problem a myth, and for Ben Hub, it was a false problem. Now, that isn't to say that these women didn't encounter resistance in the workplace. And I'm going to end with a story told to me by a woman that you actually see. We go right back to the start. Um, if the sort of copy of the newspaper article there, uh, the woman on the far right holds in the gun. Um, her name is Fadila Messi, um, and as you can see, uh, she was in the rural uh, guerrilla during the war. Um, and she did various things after independence. She was quite closely involved in sort of like national and local politics. She was in the first National Assembly in the late 1970s. She was a National Assembly deputy again. Um, but in the early 1970s, she was involved in local politics. Um, um, in the areas of Benaknun in Algiers. Um, and she describes this as quite a working class area today, it's quite a middle class area in Algiers. Um, most of the, the men um, in this sort of section, this political section where she was active, they're older men, they're illiterate, unlike her, and they're accustomed to a public sphere where there were only men. And for a long time, she's actually the only woman who works, who, who is active in this political section. So one day, the university halls of residence that were at Binakun came up on the agenda, um, and these were the, the women's halls of residence. So this is the story that Father Lemesli tells. The young women who lived there had been accused of looseness. So the men hesitantly said to me, it's a problem of morality. So we're going to ask Sister Fadila Messi to leave the room. They, of course, think they're being very polite because they don't want her ears to be offended by what they're going to say. Um, Fadila Messi, however, does not want to be excluded. So she says that she promptly replied, and I quote, I come here to debate all the problems, whatever they are. I am here with you, and you must not consider me as a woman. I am a citizen of this country, and all its problems are of interest to me. I don't see you as men. And then she says to me, she said, imagine saying that to men. For you, you are Algerians, full stop. There is no sex. And afterwards I said to myself, I'm going to get lynched on the way out. But the men were... And she sort of leaves the sentence a little bit unfinished. She said, you know, one of them told me later, that day your popularity rating reached its summit. And that just goes to show, she said, that when you have a certain confidence, a sincerity, you transmit that and everything can be accepted. So for Fadila, getting her voice heard involved taking on the role of the universal abstract citizen. Of course, citizen, I'm using that very loosely here because this is a single part of state. She uses a nationalist argument, we are all Algerians, to circumvent the gendered boundaries of the public sphere. Moreover, although she's acutely aware that she's challenging social hierarchies and taboos about what is talked about where and with whom, she underlines the importance of sort of self-help emancipation, i.e. each woman, woman needs to fight her own battles. And it's very interesting when she tells this story, she doesn't mention how the university hall's residence issue is resolved, because that's not really what this story is about. 
it's not about you know women challenging conceptions of what constitutes women's loose behaviour. Um, it's about how you make your presence felt as an individual in the public space. And actually, in any case, Fadila might have considered that these young women should have been prioritising their studies over any more frivolous pursuits. And she argues, it's not laws which make women counted. Women have to assert themselves on the ground. We need laws, but you can make yourself heard by work, by serious attitude, and by your behaviour. Uh, so Fadila both believes in the sort of the moralising rhetoric of revolutionary seriousness. And when she uses serious... She's talking in French, so sérieux has got a lot of connotations, sort of modest, restrained, composed, dignified, austere. So she believes in it, but she also uses it strategically to sort of leapfrog over sort of constraining gendered categories. And also her insistence um, that rights are fought for and not handed over on a plate is kind of sort of a mythologised sort of wartime spirit. Um, it echoes official discourse, um, but it's also used by sort of many other women of her generation when they talk about that period. Um, they, for example, say that liberty is seized, it is not given. Um, another woman said, if women don't seize their rights like they seize independence alongside men, it's not men who are going to give their rights to them. Um, and to go back to what Fadila Mababat says when she starts campaign on women's issues in, 19, in the 1960s, for this particular generation of women with their particular sort of educational trajectory, their status in society, they didn't appreciate being told that they were oppressed. So just sort of in conclusion, very briefly, um, I started off by saying that it's commonly said that after 1962, Algerian women were sent back into the kitchen, um, which in many cases is true, but many men also return to their previous roles. So we need to take that into account. There's not a radical change of roles really for men or women, and a lot of that is to do with education. Um, in 1962, there's a revolutionary context. Uh, that doesn't actually mean that a revolution takes place, and, and really it doesn't. A conservative vision of morality, i.e. don't let women mix with men, and a revolutionary version of morality, i.e. all eyes on national construction, no other distractions, could actually find quite a convenient accommodation. Now, of course, that's not to say that the socialist vision of Algerianness was the same as that of sort of religious leaders. Of course, it wasn't. But there is quite a remarkable overlap in some of the languages. And I think that helps us get away from some of the dichotomies that are used to talk about post-independence Algeria, i.e. clash between tradition and modernity, Algerians at war with itself. Um, we can see that actually it's a little bit more complicated than that. This tiny minority of educated women who sort of buy into but also strategically use the language of national construction and revolutionary seriousness to impose themselves or to force their way into the public sphere, um, they have that they have developed basic technique. By insisting on the gender-blind universalism of um, sort of what it means to be Algerian. These women fashion sort of a defensive weapon, and of course this is a double-edged sword. Women use the wartime discourse of rights being seized, not given to empower themselves, but at the same time this is a disempowering narrative in that it suggests there are no automatic rights, only privileges to be fought for. And actually if we look at discussions of the place of gender in French universalism, when dominated groups such as women are seen to embody particular identities, 
and Algerian seems to embody Algerian identity, it's impossible for them to become abstract citizens, however much they might aspire to this. Women are defined as the other, and man is the neutral. And the limits of sort of insisting sort of on this gender-blind citizenship begin to be very apparent in the sort of late 1970s, early 1980s, when in an increasingly conservative um, sort of social and political context. Um, and notably the, the passing of the Family Code in 1984, which basically confined women um, to be minors for life, those same women who had insisted on gender-neutral citizenship um, began to be at the forefront of women's rights campaigns. And I will end there. Thank Now, we'll have questions, but can I, can I begin? Because I've, I've been, um, especially, you, 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 you gave me a lead into what I wanted to say with the, the last few sentences, in, in a way. Um, uh, you've been talking very specifically about situations about in, in the 1960s, very specific circumstances. But I, I feel your, your category, your, 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 your questions, women, public space, and moral panic, seem to me categories that apply um, um, across time and, and, and to all societies and, and you did you did draw attention to the number of women members of parliament in this country at one point in the middle of in the middle of, of what you said. They, they are they are very general it's a very general situation which in Algeria is affected by by local circumstances. But I think the generality of this uh, of it entitles me to ask the question without hopefully sounding like a patronizing Western person asking a question about Algeria. I just you know Algeria well. You, 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 you're very much acquainted with Algeria today. In view of the family code and other things that you've drawn attention to, um, um, what's the situation in relation to those same three categories, women, public space, and moral panic, today, as distinct from the 1960s? Well, I mean, women are much more present in, in public space. So if you look at Algerian universities, um, more than 50% um, of students in Algerian universities are, are female. Um, increasingly, jobs are becoming more and more feminised. Um, so not only in sort of jobs that are considered traditional female roles, such as healthcare and education, um, but also other sectors of the economy. At the same time, again, you know, talking about gen general the generality of this, as sort of professions become more feminised, they also lose status. But I think that's something that can, can be applied to you know other countries as well. It's not specific to Algeria. Um, so women are, are more and more present in public space. Uh, women are more educated, the more women become educated, the later they get married, the less children they have. So if we look, for example, at the work of, say, Emmanuel Todd um, uh, about sort of women's rights in North Africa and the Middle East, um, he basically makes a very clear link between level of education, number of children, and women's rights. So the longer you, the more you're educated, the fewer children you have the amount of sort of rights that you, that, that you will have within a given society increases. Um, but at the same time, you also still have quite a clear distinction between sort of male space and, and female space in Algeria. Um, unless you're in sort of a big capital city, you probably won't, for example, get a, a marriage in which men and women will sort of mix together. 
the civil violence of the 1990s in many ways it excluded women from the street because it was dangerous and today you probably won't get that many women sort of going out at night and certainly not walking on the street on their own um, the street belongs to men at night um, whereas you will have absolutely loads of women so in the street during the day um, so the situation has changed it's, it's very different from the 1970s um, and at the same time Themes continue to the same themes continue to a certain extent to dominate debate. There still is a sense of moral panic. I did some interviews with, with students um, at, at a university um, in Algiers at the Ecole Supérieure, um, and it was very interesting that both male and female students expressed the sense of moral panic. Um, they worried that you know women were becoming too westernised, that they were too materialistic, that they had failed to you know maintain the values of women who fought in the war. Um, but actually, the same arguments were being made in the 1960s. Um, so, expressing anxieties about the direction in which a society is going often happens through women. And that's not particular to Algeria. Um, but significant changes have taken place and people also find ways, individuals find ways to, to circumvent the constraints that are placed upon them. So sort of paradoxically more open and more closed at the same time in terms of different categories. Yeah, and I think mm. as well that talking about sort of open and closed societies, the fact of the civil violence in the 1990s made Algeria a society that very much looked in upon itself. Um, so no one was coming in and no one was leaving. Mm. Um, and I think that that has slowly started to change since 2000. But it, it, it is in many ways still sort of a very inward-looking society. I first went to Algeria in 2005 and people were very shocked. Like, they were literally asking, what are you doing here? Um, and... And that also has has an impact on the way in which sort of society sees itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I was I was in, I, interested in your suggestion that that um, that um, um, the women's presence in certain professions actually has an effect on the, the standing of those professions. And I'm just briefly to be irrelevant before throwing the certain irrelevant questions. Um, 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 I was resident in Egypt for a few years in the early 1980s, and initially one noticed I, I was I was working in connection with the media initially one notice that there were an awful lot of women working, some of them in extremely senior positions um, in Egyptian television, and then one noticed that working in television was not nearly as prestigious a thing to be doing in Egypt as it would have been in the United Kingdom to which, to which I was accustomed. So you, you, you got a kind of trade-off between one thing and the other thing. This was rather startling. I'd forgotten that until this moment. Yeah. So to the floor. I'd like to begin. <coughs> yes, but just t tell us who you are and then shoot with your okay. question. Uh, my name is Ned Naylor. I'm uh, also from Portsmouth. Uh, I'm a colleague of Italian. Um, 
I just wanted to uh, sort of extend this idea of other, other models or influences and comparisons beyond Algeria. Is this definitely the green, by the way? Or should I just put that uh, it is on okay, so. Um, I just wanted to, yeah, I was just thinking about this period in the late 60s and early 70s where the state starts to get a bit involved, if only symbolically campaigning and patrolling men's behaviour or preparing to solve it or pretends to in the streets and these campaigns and things. Um, and also that picture you showed uh, of the parade with the flags. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I may have, my records may be wrong, but just the, the, the women uh, in that photograph, although well, that is much later, 76, beyond the person, the sort of hairstyles and the dresses, it feels like if that was a, in an American context, that would be a detergent advert or something like that. But something very, uh, I, I don't know. So I'm just wondering about the sort of styles and the sort of the, the, the models and inspiration for how gender relations are being thought of. Uh, at that time, whether the models are coming from um, the Lebanon, France, Egypt, the United States, whether there are other sort of uh, ideas that are influencing um, either the, the women you interview or just sort of the state and its policy vision. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the parade, I mean, there's a lot of parades now during the 60s and 70s. There still is a lot of parades. So you'll get parades on the 1st of November, which is the commemoration of the outbreak of the War of Independence. You will get um, parades on the 5th of July, which is Martin's Independence Day, and also the Day of National Youth. There's the 20th of August, which is Na- National War Veteran Day. Until recently, there was the 19th of June, which was to celebrate... Um, the, the not the Median's coup, but rather what was called um, the, the national realignment, redressement. Yeah, I'm not sure how to translate it. So I did see a funny translation of it recently. Um, so we have a, a, a lot of sort of commemoration ceremonies. Um, I suspect that. A very strong influence here would be what a French military commemoration would look like, and let it not be forgotten that a lot of people in senior positions in Algeria in the 1960s are actually come from French military background, um, so they will be well used to these kind of parades. Um, Russian, um, a lot of them look very much like sort of Russian military parades as well. So you have like the well, you have a lot of Russian weapons as well in Algeria. It's sort of parading. Um, with sort of you know different fighter jets and tanks and stuff like that, um, but basically what they do is they sort of organise the people participating um, in the parades um, according to what sort of mass organisation they belong to. So these would be the people marching um, under the banner of the National Union of Algerian Women. They. The, the women that are involved in this, they're, they're not actually that politicised. So most politicised women tend to avoid it, as I said. And they're actually quite into dressing up. Um, so there's various photos in the press when they go on their run delegation and say to China, they come back, there's this photo in the newspaper, and come back with sort of these Chinese peasant hats and sort of dressed up as kind of this local costume that they bought there. So I can well imagine that they've come up with this outfit themselves because it looks snazzy. Um, but they would be marching as a group. You'd have sort of the youth FLM marching as a group. You'd have the National Union of Algerian Workers marching as a group. You'd have a lot of young people marching as a group as well. Um, 
some of the photos from the late 1970s, 20 years, um, um, 1974, sorry, so marking the 20th anniversary of the 1st November 1954, you actually had these um, girls wearing sort of quite tight tops with the 20 on with pom-poms. So sort of cheerleader style influence. Now, I wouldn't say that they've thought about this too much, um, but I, they're kind of sort of putting together sort of different influences about what a parade should look like. Um, a, lo- a lot of them are sort of to, to demonstrate Algerian military strength, um, particularly the parades that take place, for example, after the Six-Day War, they're about to demonstrate Algerian and therefore our military strength, basically, after defeat. Um, and they're about sort of looking orderly, um, but also, you know, a little bit fashionable. Um, so, yeah, I'd say French influences, Russian influences. Obviously, there is, you know, sort of a pan-Arab theme throughout these, because that's what they're going with in sort of the 60s and the 70s. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't think that it's necessarily been sort of thought about too much as sort of a, a coherent... Um, representation of you know the precise identity or image that they're going for. Bill. Yeah, I'm Bill Sinton from the Society If you will forgive another question about how things are today, I was very struck by um, your remark that more than half of Algerian students are university students at the moment. Did I hear the right? Yep. Yeah. And um, a long-standing problem in Algeria is a social problem, social economic problem is unemployment, and I was just wondering. Where the, how, does, how do women stand comparison to men? That's a tricky question because unemployment figures in Algeria are not very reliable. <laughs> um, it is a problem. It is, no, it's definitely it's a huge problem. Um, but it's, I mean, the official figures vastly underestimate, you know, what the levels of unemployment are. I mean, they're huge, and they're especially huge sort of amongst young people. Um, so it would be hard to sort of have any sort of serious statistics that would enable us to sort of compare male and female unemployment. Um, interestingly, though, and this is kind of a little bit anecdotal, it's often seen sort of the traditional image of unemployment in Algeria is often sort of symbolised by the unemployed male, yeah? So there's a figure of the Hatist, so the bloke that's basically propping up a wall all day because um, he hasn't got anything better to do. And actually... Uh, if we go back to this picture that I particularly like on the right, those three look very suspiciously like her teeth, I think. Um, but um, female unemployment isn't talked about as a problem, whereas male unemployment is. Um, and I think that sort of says a bit about, you know, what society... what group society thinks are going to cause problems, basically, if they don't have a job. Um... But I think also the kinds of jobs that, that women can do also enables them to, to maybe 
do sort of more part-time jobs or in, work, work sort of in the informed economy and the informal economy is huge in Nigeria anyway. Um, so as a social problem, female unemployment isn't, isn't necessarily seen as that much of a problem. And in any case, once you get to 30, you probably, you know, they might as well get married, really, if they're unemployed. Might be the argument of some people. Say who you are as well. My question is about uh, what remains of the activism uh, uh, before today. What, what remains? Is it structured? Is it organized? Please Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, um, because one of the things that I've been in looking at in my research is how you actually define activism, because it's, it's, it's a really important word in, in, in the 1960s um, in Algeria. What does it mean to be an activist? Um, so obviously we get sort of this mass movement, which is the War of Independence, which is a total war in which you know, large parts of the population are massively implicated in it. And then sort of the official discourse after 1962 is that this energy, if you like, needs to be sort of channeled into national construction. So building the economy, reconstructing society, building the nation and so on and so forth. Um, and the state has a view about how that activism should take place. It's a single party state and so for the state activism should take place in its mass organisations. So the Union for Algerian Women, uh, the National uh, the Algerian Workers Union, um, the Youth FLN, yeah, all of those are mass organisations which are meant, sort of meant to structure activism and channel that activism towards national construction. But if you talk to people, in the interviews that I've done with people um, in the 1960s in Algeria, if you were opposed to the single party state, and a lot of people were, even though they didn't necessarily openly oppose it, because that would have been quite frankly dangerous, you didn't join these mass organisations, but that didn't mean that you weren't an activist. So one of the women that I interviewed, she worked in the civil service for the whole of her career. She only retired in the 1980s. Um, and she says her, her view that was exercising a profession which contributed to national construction was a form of activism. So that's how she defined it, activism, participating in, in what were called at the time tasks of national edification. Um, and this is a very interesting question because it's about the relationship to the state um, and the idea that even if you didn't really agree with what happened in Algeria in 62, even if you were against or maybe against the crew, that you kind of believed in the state and you believed in sort of the project carried by the state of national construction, so you participated in it. Um, and that kind of link, if you like, begins to break down in sort of the, the 1980s and that when, when we get that break, if you like, in the relationship sort of between the citizen and the state, that's when we start to get, you know, the rights in 1988 and everything that follows. But nevertheless, this generation of people who 
were activists in the 60s, um, often people who were actually war veterans, or indeed people who were educated in the 1960s, the first beneficiaries of sort of universal free education. Um, they often have quite a nostalgic view of this period. This is a period of national construction. And they sort of still believe to a certain extent in national construction. And these people, some of them haven't retired yet. And they're still there. Um, uh, if you sort of work on Algeria, you will know that um, the older generation in Algeria often has a bit of an issue passing power over to the younger generation. Um, but often, you know, they're, they're still in sort of spread throughout institutions across Algeria, sort of believing in this project of national construction. And, and for them, that is sort of a form of activism. Um, which I think doesn't mean very much to the vast majority of the Algerian population today. And of course, you know, almost 70% of the Algerian population is under 30. Yeah? So activism, I think, means something to people of a certain generation because it was framed in a certain way in a certain context. That was your question. Uh, what is it in the Algerian context that Sorry, could you speak up? Mm. Uh, the same groups of campaigns mm. uh, in place. Yeah, okay, okay. So until um, 1980, well, 1989, it was a single party state, yeah? So any groups weren't allowed to exist. Um, the activist or campaign group. <coughs> After the riots in 1988, we get the end of the single party state, um, the introduction of multi-partyism, and also we get law and associations, which allows people to sort of organise as associations. So there are many, many, many associations in Algeria today, um, campaigning on all kinds of different issues. Um, the problem is, um, is that they're not always very effective and well, there's many reasons why they're not often very divided amongst themselves, they're very small. Um, but also the, the sort of Algerian state, because we get the introduction of multi-partyism, but it remains an authoritarian state. The Algerian state is very good at controlling these groups. Yeah? So what it will do is say, I create a group, um, the Algerian women's group of Benakmin, for example, it will create a group called the Group of Algerian Women of Benakmin, and it becomes very difficult sort of to distinguish between them. And it's it's good at keeping that kind of activism um, at a level at which it's not going to annoy those in power too much. But then again, if you look at what's happening at the moment in the south of Algeria, Caldea, yeah, massive. Um, sort of social conflict going on there, which is, is actually not very much reported, probably because it's not happening in sort of, you know, on the northern coastal cities. Um, but there is a massive sort of social campaign going on there at the moment. Um, but I'd say probably the most common form of Algerian activism is, is much less organised, much less structured, and it will be taken to the streets. You know? So you haven't had any electricity in your area for the last two weeks, what are you going to do? You're going to build a, a barricade across the street and you're not going to let any traffic go by until they turn the water back on. Yeah, so there's also that form of, of less structure, sort of more informal, but nevertheless actually quite effective for activism. Hi, my name is Nadia Ogat. I work for Informal Thinking, but I was born and raised in Algeria. Um, when you studied the, um, the women occupation of prisons in public space, mm -hmm. have you noticed any difference in terms of 
different regions in Algeria because um, if I got the uh, right impression, it was mainly caused because it was a cultural identity sort of problem. But I, I mean, traveling around Algeria, you could see, for instance, in the Kabylia, uh, the Kabylia region, women are more, you see them more uh, out and people don't have a problem with them working or doing uh, minding their business. But when you go deep to the south, then the, the thing, things are quite different. So I'm not sure like, whether you have an academic like around yeah, I mean, certainly, sort of the further south you go, you know, to make racial generalisation attitudes will become much more conservative. Um, but at the same time, sort of, when I was doing the sort of interviews with students in Algiers, you know, a lot of students in Algiers are not from Algiers. Um, and, you know, they're from places like Camadassets. So, you know, the, the women who come from there, they might not be occupying public space when they're there, but actually they are in Algiers. Yeah. Um, and that is something, you know, to bear in mind when we're talking about regional distance differences, because as you know, this is a very sensitive and political, politicised topic, um, that sort of when you look at bigger centres such as Algiers, that actually the large majority of people living there are migrants, they might be one or two generations of them migrants, and actually a lot of them are migrants from Kabila as well. Yeah. Um, so clearly there sort of are differences between sort of towns and villages um, and, and between different regions. Um, I haven't particularly studied that in any sort of great detail, but I would also be cautious about suggesting that it's because, you know, any region, different regions have particular essence which makes them have different attitudes towards women because each of those situations is always sort of conditioned by a very particular kind of historical context and the dividing lines between regions are often very, very blurred as well. Gentlemen at the back. Yes, I'm... Um, behind, behind you first, and then you afterwards, so if it, yeah, forgive, yes. forgive me. You next. Hello, I'm Alexander Keyes from Humboldt University of Berlin. And I have a, a question about the role of the international activities of the Algerian government with regard to supporting uh, liberation movements, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, and the role that it might have had on the, on the view of women... Uh, from the point of the of view of the of the, the of the government of the regime, because um, what I find very interesting—I mean, I'm not very very familiar with Algerian history—but uh, what I find very interesting is that many of of the representative of, of the individuals coming from liberation movements in in southern Africa, Mandola in particular, they were commenting about the fact that they were quite impressed that Algeria was so liberal in terms of that the women they met were in a way so emancipated. This is in the in the mid nineteen sixties. And I wonder of course, uh, these these persons they probably they, they only had very limited contact with, with the very particular groups within Algerian society. But it, did that create in a way an image that the, that the regime wanted to uphold with regard to well showing a particular commitment to liberalism when it came to, to their partners, to their allies all over the African continent? Beyond? They absolutely used women to project. Um, an image of sort of a modern, and I use that word in 
very inverted commas, Algeria to the international community in exactly the same way as they did during the war. Um, so they have um, a group of women, and the most famous woman they use is Jamila Bukhirid, who many of you may have heard of. She is sort of one of the big heroines of the War of Independence. Um, she she is um, condemned to death for planting bombs in Algiers. She becomes the subject of a film by Yusuf Shaheen. Um, she's part of a massive campaign um, across sort of the Middle East, also across the non-aligned world during the war um, to sort of liberate her. And from French prison, take her off death row. And after independence, she becomes one of sort of the figureheads of Algeria. And she, for for the new Algerian state, she is sort of the ideal representative in many ways, because she is sort of this modern woman who sort of went out and planted bombs, and at the same time, she embodies sort of the legitimacy of the revolution. Yeah. So to, to use very cautiously um, that dichotomy of tradition and modernity, she manages to embody both. And they send her off everywhere. Um, they send her um, to the Middle East um, to do uh, a massive campaign for an organisation called the New Generation, did, um, which is basically collecting money for sort of um, war orphans. Um, she goes to Kuwait, she goes to Egypt, um, she she she's described as having a reception like a woman has never received when she goes to Kuwait and they're offering loads of money for this organisation. She goes to China um, on a big trip and she takes tea with Mao and she produces a series of reports um, for an Algerian newspaper about women in China. Um, and it's also very interesting how the situation of women in other countries is used in the Algerian context. Um, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but alongside Jamilabul Hirid, they use various sort of war veterans who are all part of this sort of young, educated, in many ways kind of social elite, or they become a social elite in 1962. So another woman they use is uh, Jamilabul Pasha, um, who is the subject of sort of a big campaign um, against, uh, who was the subject of a big campaign against the sort of torture. She was um, tortured during the war of independence. She becomes a bit of a cause celeb for French intellectuals. Simone Beauvoir writes a book about her. Jamila Bukash uh, is the first woman um, to come on a state visit to the UK. She meets the Queen. Um, and these women are considered to be sort of very, very useful. Now, it's interesting to think about, I was very interested to think about how they actually saw those roles. And it becomes clear that very quickly they become quite uncomfortable with it. Um, they find, I think, I suspect, that they start to find it quite boring. Um, Jamila Buhirid and Zul Drift, on a number of occasions, actually tried to volunteer to go and fight in the Syrian army um, in sort of the, the Arab-Israeli conflicts. A part sort of symbolic gesture, but also, um, you know, maybe they really mean it. Maybe they're sick of sort of shaking hands and sort of kissing babies. And after a few years. Um, Jamil Buhirid, she sort of withdraws from public life. Um, and perhaps one of the reasons she withdraws from public life is because she marries um, her wartime lawyer, who was Jacques Vergès, um, who is Franco-Vietnamian. Uh, 
and record Vietnamese even. And um, as a result of that, she received letters from around the world basically criticising her for not marrying someone who was Muslim, although she insisted he converted to Islam. And she had a real problem with that. She started to seriously dislike being a symbol and being seen as sort of public prophecy and sort of the symbol of the sort of the Arab nation and all that kind of thing. Um, so these women are very much using the first year of the first few years of independence, um, very much less so afterwards. And one might suspect it's because they start resisting being used in this way. Um, in terms of the way in which sort of women in other liberation movements are sort of talked about and seen in Algeria, there's lots and lots of references to them. Yeah, so when they have their International Women's Day demonstrations, they'll have banners saying, you know, solidarity with our Angolan sisters and all that kind of thing. There's quite a lot in the press on reports about the condition of women in other parts of the world, which is very interesting because these kinds of articles never ever make a link between the condition of women in those parts of the world and the condition of women in Algeria. They're always sort of tantalisingly suggested as a model that might be interesting or not. Um, so there is a sort of a certain interest to what's happening with women in other parts of the world, but not in any kind of sort of systematic way. For the anecdote, um, Algeria um, was at one point sort of the headquarters of, of PLO um, during this period, and a quite well-placed figure within the Algerian system, I don't know if this is true, um, told me that while they were all behind, you know, supporting the Arab brothers and so on and so forth, they actually got very, very sick of the PLO being based in Algiers because apparently they kept chatting up Algerian women. And for that reason, they sought to get rid of them. Um, that's just a bit of an anecdote. But it perhaps shows the limits of international solidarity. <laughs> Is it that? Oh. Yes. yes. No, you do so. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, I'm a former teacher, but I, I'm, actually, I'm Irish, and I have always had an interest in the role of women and how they, what are the main impediments to women achieving the equality within societies? It would appear on the, the on face value, I just, I don't know, I may be inaccurate in some of these things, but I believe that in the May 2012 elections, 145 uh, of the people elected out of 462 were women. And if that's accurate, I don't know. But, and also that, as opposed to in 2007, 31 out of 389. So that looks like a major step forward and it being welcomed by the women's movements there. Um, and I believe also that um, because Ireland is a post-colonial, in post-colonial situation, some parallels, I would say, with the Algerian. I'm not, I'm not as uh, knowledgeable about the Algerian context, but there are some parallels, I'm sure. And in, there is a constitutional framework which would appear in Algeria to protect the equality rights, at least in in, in name, that gives them equal status to men. So to some extent, with the constitutional framework there and a large number, a growing number of representatives, you would expect there to be maybe more signs of change at the moment. 
And I was just wondering what, what the impediments, you know, what do you see the impediments should be? Because I know that in Ireland, in the, um, the main things that tended to happen was that women were elected from the cities and from the towns. And often um, they were seen sort of nationally as being a bit, you know, too ahead of the game and they should be a bit more... You know, and the Catholic Church and also had its had had its say in that. Um, but the growing power of women, if women assume that power, if they take the franchise, if they vote, and if their uh, voice is heard through the ballot box, and. Um, you know, Algeria is at a different stage to Ireland has had the opportunity of almost 100 years or 80 years or more, 90 years, and it has taken this long, you know, for, for instance, things like divorce, contraception, for women to have had the right to have their own, to, to actually be able to negotiate their own rights around their own bodies and their private and public lives. So, do you see what, what is the logjam that is causing this today in Algeria? Well, the first thing I'd say is obviously I was talking about the 1960s. Yeah, and I know that, that, that you, John, really yeah, made me talk about the present. Kicked off <laughs> by doing that. But, Perhaps I you should know, have I'm done. talking about, you know, contexts that, that sort of 50 years ago, and I wouldn't want to suggest in any way that that's the same context that we're talking about today. I think I'd say two things about what you said. The first one about voting is that in Algeria we're not looking at a democracy. So you might have elected representatives, but they're not necessarily representing anyone. Yeah, obviously there were the recent presidential elections, you know, the result of which gave a massive majority to Flicker. Before that we had sort of the legislative elections, but you know, none of those results or the publicised results or even the, the you know the amount of number of people voting abstentionally. Um, none of that can actually be relied upon. Um, so even though men and women might be in Parliament, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have any influence on sort of the political direction of the country. The second thing is that I think we need to be very, very careful um, and avoid assuming that women promote women's issues because they don't. Um, women are not necessarily interested in wars or children's rights or any of those things any more than men do. Um, and their view of what the priority of the country might be or what direction it should go in um, are not necessarily any more liberal than those of men. Um, so I think you know, there's two things to talk about there. Um, Algerian society in, in recent years, even though political um, sort of islam has been defeated in the sense that Islamic fundamentalism as a political force is, is fairly marginalised. Um, although obviously, you know, there are still um, some groups in Algeria who are seeking sort of violently impose that agenda. Although sort of in the 1990s sort of political Islam was largely defeated, society has actually become more socially conservative. And a lot of that social conservative has been driven by women. And I think that's important to remember. 
Douglas. Last question. Darren Murphy, um, Society for Algerian Studies. Um, can we go back to the 1960s? Yes, please. <laughs> um, I'm interested in your notion of revolutionary seriousness, and I wonder whether you can say just a little bit more about it. Um, but perhaps to tie it into how you see this appearing in the, um, women's discourse at the time. So the idea of sort of uh, revolutionary seriousness was it, the idea came from trying to get away from sort of seeing Algeria sort of locked in this sort of confrontation with, on the one hand, um, sort of the, this vision of women as sort of the repository of this sort of unchanging Arabo-Islamic identity, on the other hand, um, sort of the vision of women as sort of driving the socialist revolution, and of course, you know, both those very caricatural, and actually socialism in Algeria is, is more kind of like a state-driven economy. It doesn't, it's not very Marxist at all. So the idea of revolutionary seriousness was thinking about the way in which the need for national construction created a certain language um, and quite a puritanical language um, which insisted on the need to concentrate exclusively on national construction, so building the education system, training doctors, building the health system, and so on and so forth, um, and not be sort of distracted um, by things like talking about women's places in the family. Yeah? And of course this is something that's very familiar. Yeah? So if we look um, at sort of, you know, socialism historically, very big problem with sort of feminism because it seems a distraction from what should be the, the real struggle, the class struggle. So it's, it's not a particularly sort of new idea in that sense. Um, but this sort of idea of revolutionary seriousness, sort of all eyes on national construction, don't be distracted by anything else. Um, because we're all concentrating on national construction, it's okay. Women and men can work alongside each other. It's not going to be a problem. They probably won't even have time to talk to each other. What I was thinking about was the way in which that sort of language of seriousness is then used by women um, to sort of counter the resistance that they do actually find when they go into public space. Yeah? So they go um, into a political meeting and they're asked to leave because you know, the men are talking about a subject which is not seen as suitable, but it is. And so they use this language of actually, no, I'm not a woman, I'm sort of this abstract citizen and I'm here to talk about everything and we need to be serious and get down to it and, and not be distracted by anything else. So interesting sort of use, exploring how women sort of use this language on an individual level. And it's quite significant that they use it on an individual level. It's not a struggle for women's rights, it's a struggle for individual women to make their presence felt. Um, and it's a very sort of common theme in a lot of women of that sort of small minority educated in the late colonial period, often very young women in sort of the early 1960s. And with that, we'll have to come to an end. I'd like to thank Natalia for coming and speaking to us. I'd like to apologise, by the way, for distracting everybody from the 1960s by, by talking about present day, but we got back to the 1960s. Natalia, thank you very much indeed. We're very pleased to, to have had you speak to us. <laughs>